Welcome, Wheatland family and friends. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. I am Luke LaDuc, senior pastor here at Wheatland, and I am joined weekly by our co-host, Dr. Dan Spanger, professor of history and chair of the Arts and Sciences Department at Lancaster Bible College. As a professor of history, Dan is a bright mind and engaging lecturer, and as an elder here to our Wheatland family, Dan has a warm heart for the gospel of Jesus and our life together as the body of Christ. And I am thrilled to dig more deeply into the scriptures with him each week as we tackle questions, explore connections, and generally unpack the sermon from the previous Sunday. Along the way, we'll take a few side streets, a winding road or two, but we'll never be quite so lost that you won't enjoy the scenery. Thanks for coming along. All right, welcome Wheatland community. This is Cross Reference. Um, Dan Spanger, your host. And uh, Keith Winder, who um, was occupying the pulpit this Sunday, as you're continuing us through this, um, this story about Abraham, um, this continuing story about how to wait in the Advent season, which um, I think is deepening for all of us. One of the things, Keith, that you started with is something that Luke has now mentioned once, so I'm, I'm wondering if there's more to it. It's this whole concept of titling a sermon seems to be a bit of an angst for you and, and Luke. I was not aware of this. So can you give us a little insight into why this is... Uh, this is a topic of conversation. What's what's going on with the sermon titles? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a debate in our office. Okay. Luke Luke stresses about titles, really stresses about them, and wants them really to match what he's going to say. And I think that nobody pays any attention to them. <laughs> so uh, sermon number six would work just as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sermon six. Yeah. Last week's sermon title was "Waiting with Abraham: The Second Sermon in a Series." Um, <laughs> but yeah, so. We, yeah, we talk about sermon titles and he always comes in proposing like three or four of his and, and he never gets the response he wants, which is me just saying, I don't know. Uh, I don't think it matters. Um, but then I, I went against that. Like, like, so on Sunday, I really just went against the idea that a sermon title yeah, doesn't matter. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I, it I seemed to matter it. a great deal to you. Yeah, I know, which yeah, Luke probably was really proud of himself for bringing me over <laughs> to his side on that. But only, yeah, normally I think that nobody remembers a sermon title. But I also thought, well, I don't know if the sermon title, I think the sermon title made the star of the story um, our failure or not a struggle, where I think the star of the story, as it is in every story in the Bible, is God, mm. and that God is the point. So if the sermon title is supposed to reflect the point of a sermon, then the point should be something about God most of the time. Um, and and wise my, rule of thumb one might, might <laughs> yeah, right. you probably won't go wrong on that. Um, and so we so because of Thanksgiving, I mentioned this, but because of Thanksgiving uh, and offices and our with our printing company being closed, I, I just read the passage a couple of times um, and and then submitted a title. And I read it and I started off uh, just I started off angry at Abraham and Sarah. You know, you read, you read this, you read the story, and I read it as a 21st century person, and I read it and think, what is going on? How could they possibly do this? Mm. And so I throw the title out of failing to wait. Um, 
And I, and then that was it. That was the title. And then I changed it to the God who sees and hears, but, but it was definitely from my, it, it, uh, the sermon title was uh, a window into my mm. struggle as a preacher and as a reader of scripture and history to know what to do with mm. the, you read this story and all of us read this story and think, no, you can't do that. What do you No, That's, mm. that's wrong. I could have told you that was wrong. That's obvious. Uh, but in their day, that's what that's what happened. So you must be that kind of movie watcher. Don't go in there. <laughs> it's obvious. It's obvious. It's obviously where the bad guy is hiding. Don't hide behind the chainsaws. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. But I, yeah, people might not know if, if you've never prepared a sermon that it is it is a, a bit of a gut wrenching experience. Um, and there's a time when you have to stop. And, and of course, you don't want to stop because there's so much to unpack that it really takes until Saturday where you're probably still mulling things over. And yet you've got to submit materials by Wednesday for a printing. Yeah. So there is this yeah. there is this tough lag between, I think Luke said one time, what happens when you find something Saturday afternoon and changes your whole mind on the sermon? <laughs> what <do> yeah, you <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's, so that's that's what happened to me. I, I don't think in my mind I changed the title until maybe Friday before the sermon mm -hmm. because I realized, wait, the story here is is god the story is god and how he responds to hagar and then if you continue the story it's how he responds to abraham and sarah mm. in all of this that he does keep his promise and even though they struggled to believe it that he keeps it and isaac mm. isaac is on the way even though it seems absurd and truly would be absurd like you can't blame abraham and sarah like it's absurd that they're as old as they are right. and they are supposed to trust that god's going to do something well, let's, we'll, we'll find more grace as a congregation if we haven't shown it already for generic sermon titles, just so that you feel you don't have to be as specific. <laughs> Luke. Of all the things to stress over, maybe that's just not the one to stress over. Yeah, probably. But, but to your point that, that this is a story about, about um, God hearing and listening and responding, is that, is that something you feel we've missed is we don't, we don't feel the weight of the misery, I think you would you would even use some pretty strong words about. I think you use word excruciating. I, I wrote it in my notes. I think you use that mm. as excruciating that we don't. And you you made some references to what it was like to be a woman in the ancient Near East, maybe even a father or, or a man in the ancient Near East. That there's more weight on this moment than we typically give it credit. So we understand this is not just you know Sarah and, and Abraham uh, just going. Well, I don't know. Why don't we Why don't we try something else today? But there's a lot more a lot more weight on their shoulders here than maybe we'd anticipate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I wanted to point that out partially because as I read through, it was me growing and learning that where I had, I had made a mistake. And mm -hmm. so I assume if I'm making mis that mistake, I'm sure others are mm -hmm. that when I first read this, like I said, I get, I get frustrated with Abraham and Sarah yeah, yeah. and I dismiss any, I dismiss the struggle because I know the end. It's like, oh, I know that Isaac comes and this turns out pretty well for you too. So just calm down and you should be okay. But they don't, they know the end in the sense of God has promised it, but that's, that's what they have. And they're, and they're waiting and waiting. And so when I know the end of the story, I, I dismiss the, the difficulty that they're, that they're having when you receive this promise and it's been a decade and nothing has happened yet. Like nothing literally in a sense nothing has happened to to show that that promise is going to come true god's been faithful to them i'm sure in many 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 ways and they could point to that but this one big huge way that he has verbally promised to them they don't have evidence of god's faithfulness in that and that's 
And that translates right to us when we, when we know that God is making all things new. We know that God is doing these things, but so often we look around and we think, I'm not, I'm not seeing it. Right. And so like, God, maybe I'm, I'm now I'm going to do something. I'm going to try to, the best way I know how, I'm going to do something in order to accomplish this and to bring it about rather than still patiently waiting on God to do something. And I think too, we, we don't, well, I think you, as you brought it up, there's a poignancy, which we may not really appreciate that, you know, there's no, there's no st stable life for Abraham in his old age without children. There's no position or place for Sarah. They, they're occupying land they don't own and own doesn't mean that the law recognizes right. Yeah. There's inheritance. There's familial handing off of property to the next of kin all of that that locates them is, is missing. And there's so much on their shoulders until a child is born that can carry all of that forward and give them a name and a place and a retirement or whatever else is required mm -hmm. that comes with it. So I think, I think it's helpful to see that, that sort of pain. This is, I mean, I think you referenced that there are other people that suffer similar pains. I, I was, I couldn't be in the in search service this Sunday, but I was, we we're sitting at home watching and listening. And, um, and Tara was just saying, I'm glad, I'm glad Keith mentioned that. I'm glad that he mentioned that there are a lot of people that struggle with, with, with barrenness. Um, so this is, a, this is a deep pain for lots of people. And, and at the same time, this is maybe even deeper because there are social cultural things that are even harder for them to engage. So this is, this is excruciating. I think you're right. I think it's right to phrase it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, so I grew up in generally in Southern Lancaster County. And so, and many, I had a good chunk of friends who grew up in farming communities and in farming families. And, and I mean, it's, it's a smaller pain and pressure for them, even so than even Abraham and Sarah experience even more so a greater pain and pressure than somebody in Southern Lancaster County, a farming community experience. But even they, when they don't see when a farmer, husband and wife don't have family to, to pass this down to and a family to, right. to work alongside, it's, yeah, you see this, this um, sort of wandering and drifting of like, what, what is going to be next? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to all of this, this sort of legacy of, of the family's work uh, when I don't have children to pass this on to? And so here are Abraham and Sarah with this huge promise from God and these cultural things that, that compound the pressure. And that's what I was thinking with Sarah. Like they you have all the regular, you have all the, the, the regular um, cultural pressures for Abraham and Sarah to have children. And that, that children is a sign of God's blessing, whether he's promised Isaac or not, children is a sign of God's blessing. Hmm. And now you have this particular promise that God has given, which adds to this pressure for them. And so it's understandable what they, what they do. And that's been an important part. I know that you and you and Luke have been do, doing with us. I find helpful is that you're also trying to help us to find points of contact between what they're suffering. Because I think, like you say, sometimes you look back and go, "Well, that's that's uh, that's not a problem. I, I could have handled that. I would have handled that differently." Um, is to miss the fact that there's probably more points of identity and contact here than we would think, and mm -hmm. that if if this is a this is this is a real problem. If we were in the same situation, we would feel anxious and fearful and nervous and maybe a little try to be proactive rather than wait around, which, which is good because it's easy. I think it's easy to distance all these people. Oh, that was just, that was back then. They, you know, they were crazy. There's people that worship calves and did all kinds of nutty things that, you know, that's not quite relevant to my problems. Actually, it's, it's very relevant. Maybe the terms have changed, but the problems are just as serious or, or more so. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. And and they're and they're and I like I, I mentioned somewhere their struggle to um, like like this this is who they are. This is who they are as as people wandering and and uh, and not I'm not saying they're farmers, but in that in that sort of agrarian society, right, right. Uh, this is this is everything is tied up in 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 this. And so for us, we I mean we tie we whether it's our jobs or family or whatever it is, like we imagine all of that uh, being in jeopardy and yeah. the angst that we feel, oh, wow. Like if every, if every aspect, I think about like for a pastor, if, if your job is in jeopardy, it's now it's your job and it's all like, it's your profession. It's, mm-hmm. it's your, your whole family's life is in some ways centered around this. So if, if my job was in jeopardy for whatever reason, like the, <laughs> the struggle and the angst and the, the desire in me to go quickly find something and to do something about it mm. uh, in the way that Abraham and Sarah do. I mean, that would be, yeah, that pressure there would be really heavy. Yeah. Now in, in the discussion with Sarah, um, then if all this pressure is on her and on Abraham, it seems like Sarah is the one to take initiative here. Abraham does not right or wrong. Um, but that something moves Sarah out to then make this decision with Hagar. And you've added some dimension here, which I thought was helpful. Um, I mean, I think it's there. Um, I don't know that I would have picked up on it. It's just thinking through exactly what it means for Sarah to make a decision like this and thinking not only corporately of what it means for the promise and the family, but what it means for her specifically, that she's got a lot of these things. And you brought up some ideas. I mean, you're mentioning culture here, which I think was part of Then you mentioned things like identity. Um, she's identifying herself, I think you said, by the cultural practices. So we don't think just just covenantally she's making a decision to, to manage and forward the covenant, but she's also dealing with this. There's a lot of dimensions going on, I think, the way you've discussed it um, with Sarah. So the, the cultural identity piece that she feels she needs to manage, do you see that as the, as the driving feature of Sarah's decision to call in Hagar, that it's, it's her location in society that she's most concerned about? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I if I see it as the drive. I mean, I don't know. It's so it's so hard to know. Like, yeah, it's so hard yeah. to like try to read. But but I, but I think it's interesting because yeah, there are definitely these two things going on. One is God has made these promises, and and whether these promises come true affects God's reputation in the world. In mm-hmm. a sense, it's like oh well, God's been out there and made these promises, and I'm sure Abraham hasn't kept it to himself. So so everyone's aware that that God has made this promise and that that seems to be hanging in the balance. And then you have, like you're saying, this cultural pressure and cultural awareness that she has that uh, worth for a woman and in so many ways equals having children. And so now both of these things are there and, and banging around in Sarah's head and heart. And she comes to, uh, in some ways, a reasonable conclusion that that oh this is oh this is a possibility god didn't say this god didn't say it couldn't be done this way um because he promised that out of abram he would make a great nation and then he clarifies that later in 15 oh abraham no it'll actually be your son like your biological son will be this promise and he doesn't he doesn't say this will be you and sarah's biological son so there still seems to be freedom for sarah to oh Oh, well, maybe it's, maybe it's this, because uh, God had begun to clarify the promise, but hadn't um, clarified it completely. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. she goes, she goes and does this or uh, offers this 
possibility with Hagar. So here's one of the tricky pieces I think that come that we struggle with. And you, you made mention of it in the first part of your sermon about polygamy, that the issues that, that are real, there's a, there's a, we could even say there's a moral problem. And I think that's what you were intoning. So there's a moral problem when society puts everything on a woman this way. Um, there's something wrong when a woman identifies herself this way and has to identify herself this way. There's a problem when polygamy, yet the scriptures at this point don't seem to call these out as the problem. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to call out the cultural pressure on Sarah as the problem. They don't even seem to call out polygamy as a problem. And, and I, I think biblically, certainly Christ makes that clear and Paul does at some point. Um, and I guess there's even some of that in the way that Hebrew women, men weren't supposed to marry women outside the faith, but outside of Hebrew society and culture. Um, but scripture doesn't seem to, and that's tricky. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, but just to chat about for a minute. Why, why is that in one sense? Why, why, if these things are really important things that we ought not treat a woman the way that Sarah was treated in some sense, or the way Hagar, scripture doesn't seem to be overly interested in that part of it. To Mm -hmm. us, that would be like the thing, like, yeah. Like if you were to tell the story in a modern context, um, the whole story would just be about how Sarah is mistreated or how cultures put unfair pressure on her or, or Hagar is being mistreated, which I think you alluded to, but it doesn't seem the Old Testament makes a whole lot of hay out of that. So what, why, does, why does scripture do that? Why does it not pay attention to those things? Do yeah, you think? I, I, think, I think two things. First is, I don't know, and it's frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I... But I do think, I, I, I don't know, I, this wasn't in the sermon at all, because in the end, I wasn't sure if it was right, but, but I, it's a podcast, so you can throw it out. Right. Um, but it's interesting when, when um, Jesus gets approached in Mark 10 about divorce, and they're asking him about divorce, like, hey, Moses allowed us to have divorce as long as we provide us, provided a certificate, and Jesus says, um, not word for word here, but that commandment was written for you because of the hardness of your, of your, that commandment was written because of the hardness of their hearts. Right. And so I, I, so if I take that idea and, and broaden that to God, because of the hardness of our hearts works within the particular Mm -hmm. cultural places that we are and that he doesn't say, Oh, that's, um, where I struggle and I don't know what to do because he didn't, he didn't address this with a sort of exemption in the way that he addressed divorce with this sort of exemption for people. So, so that's where, that's where that connection I think dies and falls apart, but there might, I think that there is something to, he, he looks down on humanity and the sinfulness and the hardness of, of, of our hearts and, and is moving. If you see things in a historical way is moving toward uh, something different. He is established in Genesis one, that two become one flesh. And so in some ways he's addressed this idea of polygamy right at the beginning, uh, that once you become one flesh, you can't become one flesh with somebody else. And so he addresses it at the beginning, but then seems to, uh, I don't want to say allow it, but he doesn't address it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He doesn't keep stepping in and addressing it throughout throughout uh the old testament um Hmm. until it gets reinforced by jesus and by paul and their speaking of marriage so like i guess in one way i'd say that he does address it in genesis when he establishes marriage at the very beginning by saying to become one Hmm. and if to become one that yeah you can't then become one with 15 other people it's impossible (laughs) to do that and so but but why he doesn't keep addressing it is like, I want God to keep stepping in 
Uh, well, like especially when it's somebody else's struggle, not with mine. Right. <laughs> not with mine. Yeah. When somebody else is struggling and I get to read about it on a page or I see it across <laughs> the street from me, like my, I want God to step in every single time and address it with somebody. Um, and that's not the way that God seems to work in history and right now. Uh, when I struggle with sin every single time, I don't get some, he doesn't jump in there and phone doesn't get dinged yeah which i wouldn't i wouldn't mind it except yeah i never get anything else done i'd be responding to all the dings of my sin but yeah so i i want it to happen but then i think at the same time i don't want it to happen to me because god would constantly be reminding me of my of my failure well let's say yeah i think there's truth there that god doesn't god is doing something that is not reduced finally to his people's sin God is, God is bringing a redemption that is not held up and stopped. And I think that's part of the story of this whole Abraham saga is how many times he was faithless, but God was faithful. And that's not God condoning sin. It's also God's plan is not stopped by it. It seems, it seems like God's plan continues sometimes. I mean, this, this is the Rahab question. You know, how do you, how do you bring a prostitute into, the, into, the, into Israel? Well, how do you actually make her part of the line of the coming Messiah? <laughs> All that mm-hmm. sounds rather absurd but but the sin doesn't seem to stop the promises of god and so abraham doesn't stop it it. and it's fascinating like in this particular story how uh our attempts to be creative and to offer god and assist in getting his promises (laughs) done (laughs) actually get in the way and then make him say all right well thanks but no thanks i'm still going to do my promise i've got this on my own uh this is a gift of grace but now I am going to step in and I'm going to provide grace to uh, another, like common grace to another people. And I'm going to preserve Hagar and I'm going to preserve Ishmael. Um, and I'm not saying that's salvific grace or not, but it's definitely this common grace of God stepping right. in and saying, okay, in the midst of your failure, I'm going to keep my promises and keep mm-hmm. doing what I was doing. Uh, but I'm also going to continue to extend my grace uh, to the world in the broad ways that I do as God. So I'm going to ask an unfair question. Oh, I like these. Unscripted, good. It's unfair. Um, and, and I think it, it comes from how people might end up reading this text, specifically our culture. Um, and, and that is, is, it seems like the way that Hagar is mistreated, which in modern terms is about as violent as you can get. I, I don't know if we use the R rape word here, but mm-hmm. something along those lines, that that that, that is not God's promise is going to work despite that. God is not overly concerned about stopping that or judging that in this case. Now, how, how is it that, that can, we can look at this and say, God actually is not taking the most important thing most importantly. He seems to be concerned about some plan of redemption in the future and something, something, but he's missing this real sin being done against Hagar. How is it that God can overlook what we would consider the most important thing? Isn't, isn't God isn't God here allowing abuse and not dealing with it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, really, I mean, I, I said it probably like two times in the sermon alluding to the, the fact that I really struggled uh, mm-hmm. when I, when I was thinking about this and, and reading it and studying it. And, and I mean, I believe everything that I said is, is true and right. Uh, but 
but I, I don't know if I said everything that should have been said or if I said more than should have been said because it it's a deep struggle. And, and part of that deep struggle is, is what you're identifying that in my, in my eyes, uh, this, I mean, this, this, yeah, this feels like Abraham in some way rapes Hagar. Um, not because it was forced, although she's a servant slash slave in that context. Choice, and it's not like she, yeah, she has no say in this matter, which is why the, the line is that Sarai gives her to him. So she doesn't, she doesn't offer herself. She's not in, involved in any way that she is given to Abram. And yeah, I mean, that, that hurts. <laughs> that, that hurt, that hurt my heart reading that and wondering what in the world, like what in the world do you do with that? Um, and it's, it's not a great, it is not uh, an answer that um, makes me feel a whole lot better, but God, God comes to hears Hagar's pain and affliction. And so he does address her as an individual and then there's also some big, huge thing, which you, yeah, you mentioned in your question of redemption that's happening through and over top of all this that God is deeply concerned about as well. And he's going to bring that about in the way that he had always intended. And now in the midst of these painful things that happen to people, God keeps stepping in and giving Hagar some value and worth that I don't think she was given by by anybody else in this story. Um, so I, I think that's the, the powerful thing that happens for Hagar is, I don't think God's saying, oh, that was fine, what Abram did to Hagar. But I think God comes in and says, I hear you in your affliction. I see you. And now I'm, I'm going to now come and send my angel, the Lord, to appear to you and speak with you and treat you uh, as a human. It's interesting, Hagar's name uh, nobody calls her Hagar. So Abram and Sarai don't call her Hagar in the passage. Mm -hmm. The first time that she's called Hagar, except for the narration from Moses, but the first time she's called Hagar is, is when God comes and speaks to her uh, and calls her by her name. And so even there, giving her a name, names mean something um, in the scriptures. Uh, and Hagar, I think, actually just means the immigrant. Um, Gar, meaning immigrant. So so God speaks to her and gives her a name. And that even that right there coming from the, the mouth of God, not a new name, she had that name, Hagar, but God speaks to her um, in a way that gives her value and worth as she's a human being, even though she was not treated like one. Well, that's tough. We, I, I think we, we would want, I think as moderns, would want um, the injustice to Hagar to actually be the story. And it doesn't seem, and Moses is telling it's the story. It doesn't seem what God's communicating. It's the story, but it just goes to this difficulty of having to read the old Testament and the culture that's outside of ours. It doesn't, I think you're right. I don't think scripture condones uh, treating people this way, but in that culture it was. And for some reason, God allows that for the sake of his, the sake of his, he will fill his promise despite the sinfulness of his own people. Um, but it is it is hard for us to, to to think that there's something in the story that's important that doesn't include or is not specifically about the way Hagar has been mistreated here. And mm -hmm. you know, I I do think, and I've tried to challenge students all the time when you go to scripture, you're you're going to have to let scripture set somehow the way you look at this because if not, I can say it's easy for a lot of young people looking. Well, I'm done with the Bible because the Bible is really allows a woman like Hagar to be treated this way 
and it doesn't, you know, J Abraham, there's no judgment really on him. There doesn't seem to be judgment. They still get their promise and what they want. And Hagar mm -hmm. now is a, a single mom. Mm -hmm. I'm done with it, um, which, which is a fine modern cultural thing to say. But now in one sense, our modern culture is teaching you how to read the scriptures and understand God rather than scriptures teaching us how to do that, which is not an easy thing. It doesn't seem to be, at least in this case, seem to be an easy thing to do, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And I want to, I want to raise something else that I think with you sort of tracking this way and, and asking these tough questions um, is the way that Hagar and Ishmael are typically perceived. I think in the, in the larger theological construct, it seems like this blessing in one sense to Hagar that she becomes the mother of, um, of a nation through Ishmael. Um, is also usually considered in the redemptive story a negative because he's the ass of man and he will be someone of contention. Um, but it, you seem to be saying, and I think some of the spring talk was that this is actually life-giving. So how, how do you balance the, the one out that maybe for Hagar personally, you're saying this is very life-giving for her. Um, at the same time, it seems redemptively you're setting up a very strong negative future for for at least the, the the sons and daughters of Abraham how, how do we balance those two things out yeah I think that's where I would lean on uh, when I talked about wells and springs um, of this idea that God is bringing some common grace uh, to Hagar in her life and to and to ish I mean unborn Ishmael at this point but that God God is showing her that in the midst of the wilderness that she's in when she's fleeing and risking her life to get away from the situation that she's in, that God is going to bring common grace, that he's going to bring the rain as he does for, for the evil and the sinful, and that he's, he's going to be committed to her in that way, even bringing her back into the people of Israel, sending her back into the people of Israel. Uh, he doesn't just say, like, I hear you in your affliction, now you can go back to Egypt. Uh, it's like here in your affliction, and now, now go back, go back to these people, because these are my people, and, and, and you'll be with them for a time. I know that they leave like 13 years later or so. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's how I was trying to communicate it, that this was a common grace, recognizing that, yeah, in the future, um, and it's even, it's alluded to here with the, with the words of the angel of the Lord, that, that Ishmael will now be in conflict with God's people mm. um, from, I would imagine, and I imagine actually Ishmael was probably in conflict with God's people from the moment he was old enough to be in conflict with mm. God's people um, as, as a little boy. Mm. And uh, because it doesn't seem like when they go back based on the story in chapter 21, that this relationship is uh, mended and patched between uh, Hagar and Sarah, that this is going, this is a struggle for the next 13 years as they're together. And, and Abraham seems to be caught in the midst of this struggle where he, he loves Ishmael and doesn't know what to do about this conflict. So yeah, there is definitely conflict and, and Ishmael and his descendants uh, in a sense seem to join the battle against the work that God is doing. But in this particular moment is what I was trying to highlight. In this particular moment, God, God does reach out with a blessing for her, um, which is that you will have a son, and I'm here, and I I'm, I'm here, and I see your affliction. I mean, there's a there's a lot that goes into the role of Ishmael if he's the oldest son. I'm I'm sorry to distract from from that point. We'll come back to it. I don't want to leave it. 
but I think, yeah, the oldest son actually lays claim to the property and Ishmael is the oldest son here. And so the, the tension that'll play out in who gets the land that God apparently has promised to Abraham, which, and, and I'll, uh, you can tie it in future, which we're not, we don't have to do any bit of here, but I know that many Arab scholars believe that their right to the Middle East comes from the fact that they're the firstborn son of Abraham. Uh, they're both mm -hmm. Semitics, Jews and Arabs are both Semitic, so they come from the same line. Theologically, the claim is they both come from Abraham. Um, I'm not sure we can prove it entirely one way or the other, but they're the oldest son, so they get claim. And so, yeah, they, you're right. I mean, that problem is going to be that 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 sin of 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 having a child through Hagar is going to be a problem for Abraham and Abraham's people there on forever because they they lay claim by primogeniture to the property that is Abraham's. So yeah, that's not going to go away anytime soon. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. a, and that and that and to to tie in partly. This goes back to, I think, part of the argument you were making that the, and I think you, you restated it a little differently when we were chatting off, off mic, but somehow what Abraham does with Hagar, while it's a personal sin in one sense against Hagar and that you're addressing, it's also a sin against God's promises. And there are long ramifications for that. In fact, I think you used the term even that this might be a bit of works righteousness. I don't know if you want to tease that out a little. What, what are Sarah and Abraham doing in relationship to the covenantal promises of God? Yeah, and that's why I think. That's, that's why the, this idea, uh, which was my original, but then cast out uh, <laughs> title of failure, failing to wait, uh, that's where it still does work because ultimately this failure to wait, um, like you said, wreaks havoc throughout all of history. <laughs> yeah. but, but even in this particular moment, their failure to wait on God's promise, promises is uh, I mean, these promises are going to be fulfilled by this divine act of God's grace. It's a, going to be a miraculous gift. And it was, I mean, a miraculous gift from, from God. Uh, but it was really practical for Abraham to be with Hagar to have a child because that was something that they could do. It was something within their own power as they struggled to wait. And they didn't need grace or a gift in a sense from God for that to happen. So, so I think it's, it's possible to frame this, this work of rather than continuing to wait for God to provide the gift of a son that he would give them merely out of his grace. Uh, Abram thought, oh, let me, I'll do something for you here, God. I'll assist you along in, in this salvation and this covenant promise that you've made. I'll, I'll, I'll do something. Let me, okay, I'm going to have a son. And now I have the son Hagar. Now I'm going to offer him back to you. And now here you go, God, I made a son for you. Now you can fulfill your promises. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's not the way that the gospel works. The gospel mm -hmm. works in that in ways that are unimaginable, God provides a gift. And then we respond to that gift with faithfulness to the God who has kept his promises. And so in Jesus on the cross, that is the most unimaginable thing possible that God sends his son to die. And now we respond to that unimaginable gift with faithfulness. But so often our tendency, uh, it's my tendency, I assume it's yours, is for us to try to say Speak for yourself, I don't know, like, <laughs> God, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust you in this. I, I don't see you acting. I don't visibly see you doing something. So here, let me, let me try this and then offer it back to you and I'll assist you with your promises. And assisting God with his promises in many ways is works righteousness. Mm. I'm not saying we don't work, but we work in response to mm. God's promises and God's not in place of yes yeah 
So we are never providing an assist to God <laughs> in his work. We are always responding to what he's done to us with, with work and, and with good works and, and faithful action. That's so much, it seems, a really great way of describing what the people in Jesus' time, specifically the Pharisees, Sadducees, but even most of the listeners, um, of his listeners really wanted to do, is they, they wanted to manufacture a leader. They wanted to manufacture a salvation for Israel. They didn't want to respond to Christ's work. And I, it's, it's funny, I'm just going back through Luke right now and, and watching how, how the people constantly misunderstood what Jesus was doing and what he was, where he was going, he was setting his face to Jerusalem and they couldn't understand what that meant. But I think that's a, that's a beautiful way to capture it. You're, 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 you're trying to say, okay, God wants to save Israel. I know what I'll do is I'm going to put up what looks like a, the best shot at getting a solution for Israel. And then God will come by and go, that's what I was looking for. You got it. I'm going to bless that guy and move it forward. Yeah. And Jesus kept saying, no, you're, you're missing this. And if we say grace is what God gives us and our responsibility is to respond, then that's not a passive thing. Seems like a very active thing to follow Jesus, not to point out the way or get there ahead of him and, and sort of help him down the road. It's actually just to follow him. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how Jesus has to, you know, he's always pulling his disciples aside or just publicly chastising them for the ways that they right. try to provide an assist to Jesus <laughs> rather than letting him work and then respond. And in this story, it plays out in all of our lives because Abraham tries to uh, save himself in a sense. Uh, because he tries to make a way for God to keep his promises, the immediate result is pain and conflict. And that's what happens with, with you and I and all of us, that when we, when we, th we think, oh, I don't know if God's going to do this, so I'm going to step out and I'm, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to come up with a way to accomplish something. Um, I'm going to come up with a better way to parent my kids rather than be gracious to them and rather than be patient with them. I'm going to step in and let them know. Uh, the immediate result is pain and conflict. And, and that's what happens in our lives. And that's what happens right here with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Hmm. Yeah. And so there's, yeah, the parallels between this and, and the idea of, you know, they're them struggling um, with this and looking to advance the covenant and push that forward. Um, to step in, as you say, to, to provide the assist and let God make the final scores is still not enough. <laughs> there is this, and this goes back to what you've been saying, which is the waiting, uh, which uh, there's, there must be a parallel here then between waiting and responding that we mm -hmm. wait and then we respond. These, neither of these sound overly attractive to us. Um, it'd, be, it'd be nice to get some work done ahead of time and then, you know, be able to simply just advance it rather than simply wait and then respond. But I think you're right. I mean, it does seem to play out in Abraham's life that these are the two things that he needed to do was wait and then respond with, you know, respond with joy, respond with, uh, with Thanksgiving at the birth finally of Isaac, which I think we see some of that when it happens, but it comes when this stage, when there wasn't waiting, I, I was, as you were talking through all of that, I, I kept thinking of Mary's Magnificat and her, her prayer, the way she approaches mm -hmm. this so differently. Um, when when God comes to her with this with this promise and then forces her into this really tough position of being a woman not yet married mm. and all these things but she responds with such gratitude shockingly because it's even though it sounds just like a great idea <laughs> it certainly yeah. wasn't a great idea for Mary <laughs> um, but yeah. she responds with such gratitude that and it's all about grace God lifts up the brokenhearted and heals like she responds to it with such with such joy and such gratefulness um, yeah and the chapter before when God, you know, does this covenant action that Luke had talked about in his sermon. 
Like there, Abraham sort of, when he, when he uh, faithfully laments, that's like an, that's an example, I think, of active waiting in a mm. sense. It's, talk, it's, it's talking to God. It's not accusing God. It's coming to God. It's like, I am struggling. How are you going to do this? Mm. God responds. Uh, God keeps his promise and the earth shows how he's going to keep his promise in one in more clarifying ways. And then Abraham believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. And that's like, that's this sometimes waiting is seeing the promises of God and responding. So it's not inactivity, but it's not stepping in and inserting yourself beforehand. Mm -hmm. It's seeing how God works and then responding with, with faith. And that's the word that Paul returns to in Romans is belief. Um, we're in a Calvin group. We're just going through Calvin and the book two, I believe, or the beginning of book three. Anyway, the, the point was it's talking about justification. And he says, he says, the work of the Christian is to believe what Christ has already done, which sounds like a rather mm -hmm. passive thing to do. But to look at Abram and realize that belief was the one thing he could not muster in those days between justification yeah. being counted as righteousness and the final birth of Isaac. It seemed like belief mm -hmm. was the hardest thing to do. And maybe that's not passive. Maybe. And I, and I, I that's, true of us all all around we're waiting for christ to come back and belief in that can sometimes be the hardest work to do it's just so difficult to believe something that you just cannot I think the writer of hebrews you can't see it i don't have evidence of it i don't have god constantly reaffirming it i still have to believe it it's just really really hard work i think it's good to just encourage one another with the idea that if you're holding to your belief that's good work that is that is honest and hard work yeah. you're doing in yeah. believing yeah, 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 that's so true. <laughs> just just uh, continuing to go by the Spirit's work in your heart and continuing to believe and continue to go day after day when some things around you are encouraging you and moving you more uh, towards making it, quote unquote, easier to believe. <laughs> and some things around you are falling apart and, mm. and feels like they're pulling you away. Yeah, just some of the good work in our life is is to keep going in this belief. Well, it's yeah. just so hard because this culture is very much an activist culture. And so it seems mm -hmm. like, you know, like we, we hear this criticism public, well, you know, there's a shooting or something while I'm praying for you. Well, that's useless and a waste of time. Do something about it. And, and sure, there are things we need to do in lots of instances. But I think you're right. And the scripture really calls us to the hard work of belief. And I think to encourage you say, if, if you've woken up today and you're struggling with sin, but you believe and you and you you push into that belief and you encourage one another. That's really great work to do. That's God honors that. That's the kind of thing God's actually calling us to. I think it's a good encouragement. It would have been interesting to see how, how Abraham would have walked through. I think he does that with Isaac when he's told to go sacrifice Isaac. Those three days of tremendous hard work to continue to believe God, even in that, even in light of that, that command was probably nearly impossible. Yeah. And that's where like tying belief and prayer together um we talk about and you see in the sermon uh that abram listens to sarah's he listens to her voice uh rather than listening to the voice of god mm. and yeah like the further you get away from prayer and reading the scriptures and seeking god's voice uh mm. the further you get away from that the the more likely you are to to not be patient and to not wait and to struggle with disbelief um and like i said like it's it's never bad to listen to the voice of others, but the voice of others should always be. And if someone comes to me for advice, my voice should always be pushing them back towards the voice of God. Mm -hmm. It should be directing them towards the voice of God, not towards something that I can come up with on my own. That seems like a good idea. And so 
yeah, that's where I think belief becomes more and more difficult the further and further we get away from the voice right. of God. Because now the louder all the other voices get, right. uh, the quieter God's voice is, the louder every other voice. You is. know, in, in, in our culture and even our Christian culture, prayer is not a highly valued discipline. Um, being quiet, um, prayer, you know, just seems so passive. It seems so I'm just talking, but scripture, scripture holds it up as such an important action. And, and like you say, if, if, if we're believing in God, then believing God is talking to him. It is prayer. It is bringing, I mean, Christ seems to do this a lot. He's always going off on his own to pray for hours and hours, sometimes days at a time. It seems like that's how he really works through his relationship with the father is through prayer. And we've got this opportunity to pray. Um, but we consider that, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do stuff. And then if I've got time, I'll pray when it seems like praying is the doing stuff. It seems like in the Christian faith, prayer is the thing that we're actually doing, which is probably a recentering we kind of need. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we prize it as much in our Christian culture. It's always something that's that's slighted. Yeah, I was reading. Um, I'm reading a book by Justin Early, and I forget what it's called, Habits in the Household of God or something like that. It's a parenting book, and it has like seven or eight habits that he pushes us towards. And one is prayer, praying for your spouse and your kids, or it could be, could be, or it could be your roommate or whoever, your parents. Because um, I think I've been struggling a lot with recently, just with really believing that God is going to keep his promises with my family, with my wife and kids. Like, God, are you, are you going to be faithful to them? Uh, in the midst of my failure, are you going to be, are you going to be the true and good father to my children uh, and, and to my, and to Melanie? And so one of the things he recommends is either every morning or every night or, or both, as you walk past their room, when you wake up or when you go to bed, as you walk past your kid's room when they're asleep, is to offer just a two-sentence prayer to God uh, for, both of your, for both of your, all of your children or for your child or all of your children and your spouse. And he's like, this is not a miracle, but what it does is it establishes over and over again in our heads and our hearts that it's God who will and is faithful to keep his promises. And it's not about me doing something special uh, and God thanking me like, oh, thanks for doing that, Keith, because now I can work and now I can do my business. Uh, it's acknowledging that God's the one that does this. And the more and more that I'm in prayer, the more and more I'm able to hear the voice of God uh, in the scriptures and by the spirit and not all the voices around me that tell me that I've got to do something as a husband or a father or as a worker in this particular business or whatever it is, that God will be faithful. Yeah, and that, that, I think that ties in really nicely with where we find Abraham not doing what he should have done, which I think mm -hmm. what Luke tied in before, which is this idea of lamenting properly, of actually praying that belief is the hard work and prayer is how we live that out, that that seems to have ceased or stopped here anyway. It just appears to be that way. And you drew a really interesting parallel between that and the garden, which it, I, as you started sermon, I, as you started going through it, I thought, oh, that's an interesting parallel. And then you sort of deepened it as the sermon went on. This idea that you've got, yeah, Abraham with multiple voices, the same way Adam had multiple voices, and it's Eve that's listened to the temptation of Satan, and obviously at this point, Sarah that's listened to the temptation of her, her own culture or, or all the things playing on her that ultimately Abraham owns the same way that Adam owns 
and that this the parallel then comes if you don't obey the voice of the lord then you have all of this tension and you're right the tension with hagar and sarah is not does not go away because she has an oldest son now it gets now it gets 10 times worse and then of course that plays out as we already mentioned in so many ways in the future so to go back to what luke was doing earlier this genesis story seems to set a pattern a paradigm that becomes very clear as it's played out again in the life of abraham and sarah which you know whether they would have known it or not i think the people of israel could see it quite clearly you either obey the voice of the lord and that leads to order mm -hmm. and peace or you obey the voice of temptation um however that comes i don't think sarah's the one responsible for it necessarily here it's, it's abraham owns it in some ways but yeah. Right. Yeah, listening to that voice is it comes with all the fall and the and the difficulty that follows it. Yeah, it's it's uh maybe for some people it's annoying how often the story does come back to Genesis <laughs> one, two, and three, but it is the foundation for our entire existence as as people. And right. so of course it does in some ways come back. But the pattern, like the pattern that is set in the Garden of Eden for our failure, which is the general pattern is. If for whatever particular reason in our situation, it's distancing ourselves from God and not listening to God and instead listening to something else. So whether it's autonomy or selfishness or, or whatever it is, like it's, it's failing to listen to the voice of God, like distancing ourselves in that relationship and attaching ourselves to something else. Mm -hmm. And like that... <laughs> That, that's, that is, that's sin. It's a lack of conformity to God's will and God's word. And it's attaching or conforming ourselves to something else, which is of course why uh, we're said it's, we're told to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, because mm -hmm. when we're conformed to something else, that means we've drifted away from conformity to God mm -hmm. and conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And now we are uh, attaching ourselves to something else. And that, like, that's, that's all of our sin it starts in the garden. It keeps going. And of course, Abram and Sarah are struggling with that in the story. And, and we're all struggling with it now. It's, it's, it's wonderful in some ways. I mean, not that, not that the reality of sin is wonderful, but, but I think to, you know, you, if you, if you misread the Genesis uh, three story, it can sound like this arbitrary test and a fruit that was really bizarre. But if you really, I think to really get underneath it, you do see it's so prophetic. Um, it's so prophetic about where we all are as human beings. It's so prophetic about where our hearts are. And, and you're right. You can, you can disentangle all the specifics. It's this sin at this time, at this age, where I am fine, all those things. But underlying it is the same exact sin. I, I, always, I tell students in that, in that regard that the, the, the fruit is as savory to us as it was to Eve. And we... We are tempted with the very same exact chemical compound of whatever that fruit is, is the same thing that continues to appeal to us. It's just so prophetic about who we are. And, and, and one thing I want to, I want to just, uh, just tie the rest of our time sort of point to is you made this one and I'm, I, I should have written down the exact words. So I'm not sure I'm getting this exactly right, but you, you, you brought up this idea of Onesimus and Hagar, some similarities. I thought it was really interesting how those two are tied together. But it, you, you actually made, you were making this point, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, make sure I get your wording right. But somehow the fact that Hagar goes back to Abraham and Sarah, and the fact that Onesimus goes back the way Paul calls them, that somehow these are proofs of the, of the promises of God, that these are proofs that Christ will return. That somehow when, when God's people, when people obey the voice of God and, and follow him, even when it seems like it's an impossible task that they become, again, another witness, another pointer to this mm -hmm. truth that Christ returned. Can you unpack that a little about where you were headed with that comparison? Yeah, yeah. And I, 
I really wish, I don't think I ever said the word witness and you just said it. And that's, I wish I would have used that, that term. Uh, maybe I did, but maybe I didn't, but um, yeah. I, so that was, that was the final thing in this, in this story that really irked me initially. <laughs> I'm like, God, God, what are you doing? Why are you sending her back there? Like, hmm. like, I don't, of course, I didn't think where would you send her? Where else would he send her? Like, yeah. Tell me a better place, Keith, uh, to send her. <laughs> but yeah, my first thought is like, why are you sending her there? And and I've heard that used in horrible ways uh, mm. to tell people to go back to to the, someone who's hurt them and abused them. Um, and I I made a point to say that right. this is a particular direct directive for a particular person, particular situation. It's not a general call to all people who've been harmed by someone to always go back to it. Mm. Um, but I can't just say that because he does send her back. Um, and he sends, he sends her back, but I think he sends her back to the people of God and he sends Hagar back with a particular message, which she, which she says, which is truly here. I've seen him who looks after me. And yeah, she now goes back with this story that even in the midst of our failure, even in the midst for Abraham and Sarah, when they, she goes back, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, this is what happened when I went into the wilderness and God sent me back to you. Now, like that is now a story of grace uh, for Abraham and Sarah, for that story that the gospel and to take hold of their lives. And I, I think it's the same thing that happens for Paul with Anisimus and Philemon. He sends him back with the story of the gospel. And it's, it's a powerful, powerful uh, opportunity for Abraham and Sarah to respond to that that God will keep his promises. If he protected Hagar in the wilderness, then he will keep the promise that he will bring you a son. And I, I was thinking too, I didn't say anything about this, but I was thinking how, um, how corporate and individual this is. Mm. I know we, we, uh, we spend a lot of time pushing back on sort of the hyper-individualism in our culture, mm. which I think is good and necessary uh, because it's not just in our culture, it's in our faith communities as well and that's good and necessary but like this is a reminder too that we can't forget that god doesn't just look at us as a group of people but he looks upon us as individuals as well as well truly here i've seen him who looks after me and i think it's like this is a message that god we never slip past the gaze of god uh it's not and it's not a gaze of god that sort of looks down to catch us in our sin and our failure and humiliate us um, I talked about one of my favorite movies, which was Wally, a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Which, yep. thankfully, I found out that you love that as well. One of my I do, least, I do. One of it's my good least, choice on your part. Yeah, one of my least favorite movies is Meet the Parents, um, <laughs> because I can't stand it that Ben Stiller's doing like his best, and he's actually doing pretty well. But this father is watching. He never leaves the father's gaze, but the father's always looking at him to catch him. And, and to catch him in, in something, in an error, in a failure. And that's how I tend, when I hear that God, the Lord sees me, my first thought is, oh no, the Lord sees me. <laughs> and, and that's the opposite of the message here. The message is, no, the Lord sees you. Like the Lord sees you in your pain, in your difficulty. And that's the message that Hagar takes, takes back to Abraham and Sarah. Look, the Lord sees you in, in, your, in your affliction. And so, so this is what you need to hear uh, for you as you seek to be faithful and wait 
for God's promises. So in that way, yeah, she's a witness to God's goodness and faith. You know, there's another feature of that, which is really intriguing. And that is that the suffering that Hagar goes through, Onesimus goes through, is not useless. Um, mm. and I think sometimes we do reduce God's kindness to whether we do or don't suffer. That's a particular modern problem. Say, you say, you know, sort of a rabid individualism. It, it, probably you could, you could almost use a different set of terms for it. It's this idea that our comfort is God's greatest concern. And then, and, and here, and I think that's really, really, really helpful to say that what they go through, God is very interested in redeeming and putting to great work, um, that, that this is not something that happens that, that God's like, ah, I wish that hadn't happened. There's not much I can do about it, but I'll, as a, as a, you know, as a prize at the end, I'll let you, I'll let you have this or that. It's, it's more, it seems to be that he takes this awful thing as that happen, and he, allows you to be part of the redeeming of them that somehow if Hagar goes back her suffering is part of the redemption that maybe even happens to to Abram or maybe maybe Onesimus's return is somehow redeeming to Philemon I mean that, that, and, and I think that's such a that's a powerful push against our culture which is which is trying to rewrite goodness as you know making sure suffering never happens which I think you know scriptures admit this is impossible that's there's always gonna be suffering in this world but rather that God knows the suffering and that he's going to use the suffering as part of his redemptive plan. He's going to redeem it in some way. It's really mm -hmm. encouraging to see, to see a slave go back and say, you know, your, your slavery is suffering, and I'm going to use it as a very act. Because this is what Jesus does, right? He comes down, mm -hmm. he accepts the injustice of being crucified by Pilate, you know, who really is, you know, in one sense, this um, false claim to power, who is an mm -hmm. earthly power, assuming power over God himself. But Jesus accepts the worst injustice possible, but the worst injustice against Jesus becomes the very act of redemption itself. It's just something so um, meaningful about the fact that God is not out there trying to stop suffering, but he is out there redeeming it all somehow to mm -hmm. his good plan. Um, yeah. It's really encouraging. Yeah, and he can do that uh, in very um, obvious, very quick. Oh, I see it. I saw it. I see it tomorrow. Sometimes it might happen um, not even in our lifetime. Like sometimes it's not even that we see, like there could be horrible things that ha to happen to us. And, and I, I never see the good that comes out of it. Uh, but, but all suffering happens within this redemptive plan right. of God. And sometimes there are things in, a, in my life I know that I can point to like, oh, I see how God used that suffering for, for something good. I see where I've learned and now... I'm a better follower of Christ because of it. Uh, and some things I still wonder, like, why did, the, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Um, and, and in those moments, it's waiting and trusting that God is still bringing about redemption, even in the midst of that. And not despite right. of it, not around it, around right. that suffering, but, but right through it, that God continues to bring redemption. Right. And I think, yeah, in many ways, it's nice that you sort of brought that up, because in many ways, that, like, that's 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 the theme of this story mm -hmm. that god doesn't go around this he doesn't avoid it he doesn't think oh man now you guys did this now what do i do just <laughs> right through this right through this it. suffering yeah. and affliction yeah. and struggle god brings his redemption and and it will and it continues the story of abraham yeah and, and maybe maybe we can say at some point that we are we encouraged to find ourselves not as we are sufferers but we find ourselves in the redemptive plan and it and I think that's that's the that's the tension now is we're we're told to find our identity in the suffering that this is this is who we are and this is unjust. All that's very true, but that's not our identity. Our identity is not mm -hmm. the injustice that happens to us. Our identity is in the redemptive plan that God is working through 
the injustice that happens to us. So that's the thing is how you get to Peter saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you suffer persecution. Mm-hmm. Persecution is injustice. Let's be clear about that. But that that is to find joy because that's now you get to see in very plain way that God's going to redeem that somehow. And that's where our faith yeah. and belief come. Yeah. 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 Being children of God is the world shattering, altering thing that change. It changes. <laughs> every, it changes the way that we see Could everything. Be. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. And that's, I guess that's our entire life's work of the spirit right. uh, working right. on us to help us grow more and more to see how being a child of God really does transform everything that Amen. happens to us, everything good and bad. Amen. Not much to say on top of that, Keith. Um, I know, I, I assume Luke is back in the pulpit next week. He is. So everybody that was home taking a week off can come back. And uh, That's not what yeah. I saw from the communion line. It got pretty long <laughs> there. I think it yeah, went on to song number three. During song the number three. Yeah. yeah I, when I, you know. yeah, that's true. We are having, we're doing shorter songs. So it makes it look like there's okay. way more people at Wheatland on Sunday. Oh, good uh, yeah. He's, he's back in. And um, I think that he is going to preach on um, Sarah laughing when she hears about this promised son. So would you like the chance to say, to talk, to say anything about what Luke is going to say? (laughs) What What are you going to say about what Luke is going to say? Because he was going to do another passage. And this morning he came in and said, I changed it. I think I'm going to do Sarah and her laugh. On Tuesday, it's time to get the sermon title in yet by Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we already have a title for him. It's Waiting on Abraham, Waiting with Abraham, number three. Number three. That's that's accurate, accurate. Not very artful, but very accurate. I'll submit that to the bullet. (laughs) I wish you would. (laughs) I'd love to see Luke's, I'd love to see Luke's rationale for that on Sunday morning. Yeah, number three. Well, thank you, Pastor Winder. Um, Yep, thanks, Dan. Appreciate your time. Friends, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about our church and discover additional resources on our website, wheatlandpca.org.